Hello and welcome to the Modern House podcast. I'm Matt Gibbard, co-founder of design-led estate agency, The Modern House. Today's guest is Michael Craig Martin. Now in his late 70s, Michael's recognised as one of the most influential contemporary artists and teachers of his generation. He's Emeritus Professor of Fine Art at Goldsmiths, where he was instrumental in the emergence of the so-called Young British Artists in the 1980s, and he was given a knighthood for services to art in 2016. As always, I've asked him to select his three favourite homes from anywhere in the world as the framework for our discussion, and he's made some very personal choices, which I think always makes for an enlightening result. Thanks a lot for listening as always, and I hope you enjoy it. So Michael, you and I met a few years ago now when you asked us to sell your house and studio (laughs) in Kentish Town in London. Um, It was designed by John Pawson in the mid-80s. Um, and you've chosen it very wisely as your first pick of your three favourite living spaces. So just describe <laughs> it to us for those obviously haven't seen it. I bought it in the mid-80s, and it was a derelict ruin when I got it. Um, it was sold to me as as a former factory. I think it was next door to a pub, and I think it was actually a, probably a small brewery. Um, it was just one grand room with very high ceilings, clear story windows, and then a, a basement, quite a, quite a high ceiling basement. And it only had windows on the, on the front and the clear story windows. So, so there were three walls 14 feet high. So it was a perfect place as a studio. It wasn't the easiest place to have as a studio and to live, but I was very happy to be there. Tell us, why is that perfect as a studio to have mainly top light and lots of wall space? Well, uh, I've always worked on the wall. I've always painted by putting works on the walls. And the thing about having so much wall space, you can never have too much wall space in a studio uh, because it allows you to do a lot of things at the same time and to be able to see things easily um, it was a very, very attractive place to to live and work. The light was beautiful, um, and it was hidden away, so it was a slightly secret place. Um, I understand there are people who buy houses they can afford. I never bought any property that I could afford. Yeah, <laughs> I always, right. <laughs> every, every property I ever bought was one I couldn't afford. Yeah. And when I uh, started with this property, I I had just gotten to know John Pawson. And really, in the year that the the place was being done, he became famous. Uh, He was somebody I met through through a friend. And uh, I had no sense of that when we started. But by the the time the place was finished, or or at least as as the first phase of it was finished, um, I ran out of money in the... building procedure and I had for two or three years I had no kitchen <laughs> right okay wow How that's did... what I mean by buying something you can't afford <laughs> my mother bought me a dishwasher and I had a dishwasher but no sink <laughs> wow okay well that's that's proper artistry right there isn't it so how how did so you met you met John through a friend I mean he he must have been working with Claudio Silvestrin at that point that's right he? that's right but both uh, John and Claudio worked on the on that Highgate Road place, and it was very, a very special project. Uh, the, the space was very dramatic, and it was um, architecture is really about space and light, and 
uh, if you can combine both of them, that's the, the, the ideal, absolutely ideal. What was your brief to them then, or did you just give them free reign? I mean, they were very young architects, and I, I was interested because they were radical architects. So I wanted to say, you tell me, you know, the craziest ideas, the best ideas you can come up with. Let's see where we can go with that. Um, I, I have to say that I learned a fantastic amount about architecture through uh, John and through that project. I'm not, strictly speaking, a minimalist. In, I've never pleased John about the way I live in relation to... <laughs> <laughs> I've, never, I've never had it little enough uh, it, uh, to please him. But on the other hand, uh, I understood instinctively about the idea that everything was important. Every single detail is important. Everything matters. And the more you reduce what John referred to as visual clutter, the more important every single thing becomes. And I'm not interested in having uh, 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 extremely few things, but I do think that every single thing matters and everything must be given its own proper space, its own proper function. Uh, and that, that's very much at the heart of, the, of his approach to architecture. That's very interesting. Spatially, it's quite experimental, isn't it? Because you've got the upper level as your studio and sitting room and then probably one of the most vertiginous staircases I think I've ever been down, down to the lower level where the kitchen was basically kind of shoehorned into the foot of the stairs, wasn't it? And then, yes. And then round from there you had an open shower room with no walls uh, and then you slept in... <laughs> The kind of dark space in the recesses of the of the bottom floor at the back, which had the least amount of light, which made most sense. What was that like? Actually, you know, spatially, what was that like to use? I mean, I loved the um, the grand staircase because the staircase was not only was it ludicrously steep, but it was um, it was six feet wide yeah. in this quite small space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with and open on both sides. And originally, there were no railings. It was truly death-defying to go down it. Uh, um, and I remember when the building inspector was coming to, you know, agree to the staircase, and uh, we were very, very worried that it was going to be turned down. It was, it was obvious that it might be. And um, to, to our amazement, he just wanted um, it better fire-clad underneath, underneath the stairs and never mentioned the fact that it was so steep. That's amazing. I don't know how we got away with it. That's amazing. Well, you, you must, yeah, I mean, the, the pitter-patter of footsteps as you go down it, it's quite impressive. <laughs> um, I, I have to say, having a staircase that's that dangerous, um, potentially dangerous, uh, made me very careful about going up and down stairs. And so in all the years I lived there, I never once fell down the stairs. There you go. Because I never once went down the stairs without thinking, I'm going down the stairs. That makes sense, doesn't it? I never did it, you know, without being conscious of what I was doing. And and, and what about the open shower? Was was that just purely because of a lack of space? The one thing I really don't like is is claustrophobia. Mm. And, you know, bathrooms that are too small and very... Um, uh, enclosed. It just it just seemed like a, like there was a possibility of of doing that there. And I... The only thing that was private was the toilet. Okay. So on the wall was a huge, colourful canvas of yours, which 
characteristically shows kind of ordinary household objects on a on a green background. Um, most of our listeners will know about you and your work, but for those who don't, how do you describe what it is that you do in your work? Um, what I've done over many years is uh, make line drawings, a very simple kind of mechanistic kind of line drawing of ordinary objects. They're things that are mostly mass-produced. They're things that are part of contemporary life. I never draw anything that you can't name within a fraction of a second. Okay. So if you look at it, you think umbrella, shoe, table. You have a name for it. So you don't have to figure anything out. I never draw anything obscure. Mm-hmm. Um, I draw everything in a way they, they seem quite detached, but they're actually ver- they're very detailed. I never distort anything. But then I introduced color, and the color is completely free. And I use... Uh, color in a way that is the opposite of the drawing. So whereas the drawing is reassuringly familiar, the color is unfamiliar. It's definitely not naturalistic. I discovered as I was working that it was interesting to make anything any color. I could make something yellow or I could make it pink. And it, it changed the thing, but but I was free to do that. And part of making pictures is that you can do that. I could take very ordinary, familiar things and make them suddenly unfamiliar. So the fact that they're so brightly coloured, all of them, is, is, that, is that in some ways a counterpoint to the way that you live, I wonder? I mean, you've got this very minimal home and studio with a massive bright canvas on it. It kind of wouldn't work if it was all that way, would it? No, it certainly wouldn't. And I mean, I've done uh, installations across, in various places across the world. Uh, most of them are temporary, and where I've painted room after room. You know, I've sometimes six or eight rooms in a row, each one in a different uh, vivid color with giant images in in the same vivid colors. That's fine for visiting. I wouldn't dream of wanting to live like that, <laughs> and I would not recommend it. Uh, color can be very overwhelming in a domestic space, and and I think it becomes tiresome, and it becomes it also becomes kind of boring. If you have a room that's bright red, and it may be very striking when you first go into it, but if you live with it, I think it it gets very difficult. I'd much rather have a room that was in a neutral color. I mean, in my place, everything is white. And, but then to have things within it which are high-colored. Yeah. So you can, you can kind of escape into them, through, into the color, but you're not actually engulfed by it. But if it's a temporary situation or if, if I'm doing an installation in the, in the lobby of some place, some place where people are passing through, then you can have as much of that as you want because nobody is actually, in a sense, being with it all the time. That's really interesting. What's it like to live with your own work? I mean, some artists do, some don't. What, what do you make of that? I used to object to it very much, but the whole idea of having one's own work. But now I realize I have my own work in every place I live. Partly it's because, uh, uh, in, certainly in some of the places I've lived, you know, like the painting you were describing, um, that was a giant painting. You know, that must have been about eight or ten feet high, that painting. Well, very few people 
actually buy paintings that size. Yeah. And the only ones I can afford that are the proper size are the ones I do myself. Yeah, right. <laughs> if I want to buy somebody else's work at that scale, it's very, very expensive. <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> <laughs> but I've got plenty of my own. Yeah. So uh, uh, so I'm quite happy to, um, that makes sense. Uh, to hang them. It's also interesting for me to, to live with them myself in a way that's not in the studio. Mm-hmm. Most of the time I make something in the studio, it leaves the studio, I never see it again, or I see it in the gallery. Um, but to actually spend time myself, it, it teaches you something. Yeah, okay. One of your best-known artworks is called An Oak Tree from 1973, which is a glass of water on a glass shelf attached to the wall of the gallery. What were you trying to say with that? The glass of water, there's a, there's a text that goes with uh, the objects, and uh, in the text, which is in the form of an interview with myself, um, I claim to have changed the glass of water into an oak tree, but without changing the appearance of the glass of water. So the thing still looks like a glass of water, but that, in fact, it is no longer um, a glass of water. It's actually an oak tree. You know, it was uh, an attempt to to kind of uh, understand the relationship between the artist, the viewer, the object, the imagination, the idea of what it is for something in art to represent something, the way in which we, we picture things and the way in which our minds are able to play with certain kinds of ideas. And I think I saw it as kind of a kind of basis of all art, that that is really what art asks of you. If I do a painting of a shoe, when you look at the painting, there is no shoe. And yet you have the experience that there is a shoe. And that's a key thing to how we understand not just art, but how, we, how vision works. That's how, we, that's how we understand the world, which is very much what my work has been about uh, in, the, in the paintings as well as in things like the oak tree. Right, okay. You've also taught for much of your life as well at Goldsmiths, haven't you? What's that like to inspire others in that way as well, to to teach the next generation? I only taught because I needed to make a living and I couldn't in the beginning make a living for my work. And as soon as I could make a living, I stopped teaching. It wasn't wasn't my vocation. Um, But it was important to me to make it enjoyable for myself um, and interesting. And I discovered that it was very interesting teaching highly creative people and what does it mean to teach the arts it's a very funny thing to to teach because it's not like teaching a normal subject yeah and there's no right or wrong there's no right and wrong and it doesn't have a normal progression if if you're going to study french you know you start off with basic french and then you you know you go on and as you gain more vocabulary and more understanding of the language you get better and you go to more advanced Art doesn't work like that. Uh, people sometimes act as though there are very basic things that underlie everything. But the fact is, as soon as you start to make anything independently, you are making art. And it's the independence of, of the individual, the independence of mind, that is the key thing. And I was very lucky. I, I, most of my teaching was between in the 70s, 80s, and then a bit into the 90s. And... This was a golden age of art education in Britain and uh, there was enormous academic freedom so that we were able to work in a way that made complete sense to us and that was very special. You famously taught 
um, Damien Hurst and Sarah Lucas and Gary Hume and, and others from that era. Was it clear at that point that that was a golden generation? I I have to say, I, I mean, I never taught in any school or any year in which I didn't have students that I could see were of enormous promise. But what happened in the generation at Goldsmiths at the towards the end of the 80s, and it wasn't a single year, it was over two or three, four years, um, I, suddenly I realized there were an exceptional number of very, very interesting students simultaneously. And they were very conscious of each other. They were very conscious of what each other were doing. And in a sense, they were bouncing off each other. One would do something really interesting and the other one would be jealous and then try to make something as good or better. And so the the impact that they were having on each other was very, very important. And I was aware very early on that there was something very special Happening, I could never have imagined that that they would become as successful and have such a big dramatic uh, impact on on the art world. But I did have a sense that uh, there was no reason why they could not enter the art world in a serious way. Fascinating stuff, Michael. Let's move on to your second choice of living space. So, once we'd sold your place in Kentish Town for you you were very determined then to move to the Barbican estate, which, of course, is a sprawling concrete estate in the city of London designed by Chamberlain, Powell and Bond. So this is your own flat in one of the towers there. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I'm I'm one of those people who, the minute I walk into a place, if it's right for me, I know within three minutes. (laughs) And I wanted to move from where I had been in the studio. I wanted to be someplace quite different. I wanted I wanted an apartment. And I looked, as one does, you know, on Zoopla and all those things, of looking for places to find, and I couldn't find... And then I'd been to the Barbican because I'd known people over the years who'd been here, and I thought, none of this is as nice as the apartments I've been in the Barbican. So I went to the Barbican, and I went to an agent. He took me into this apartment, and I was there for a few minutes, and I said, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> and he, he nearly dropped dead. <laughs> I was going to say, said, that never happens. <laughs> he, said, he said, I've got another one, a better in a different building. In the, I said, I don't, I don't need to see it. I don't need to see it. I what, want this one. What was it about it then? Um, it was a very curious what had been done to it, very special. The people before me, uh, there was a it was a couple, and they had had an architect completely redo the interior. So the interior of the apartment had been completely gutted and then redone. Okay, and it had been done by an architectural firm called Tonkin Lu, mm-hmm. and who are interesting architects. And essentially, these people had said, "This is a three bedroom apartment. We only want one bedroom." Right. So. The architect kind of made turned it into a one-bedroom apartment. Okay. So I'm not sure, but it's the only one I've ever seen in the Barbican. The, the buildings in the towers have four large windows down one side. And I think I have the only one in which you can see all four windows simultaneously because it's so open that you can look right through the apartment from one end to the other. There are no doors. You can shut off the the bedroom, but it's got sliding doors to do that. And other than that, the place is completely open. And I have changed a few things 
since I've been here, but the basic, the essence of the apartment is exactly as I bought it. Even it's painted in, um, the, the living room is white and the next room is kind of pale gray and then there's a darker gray and then the bedroom is going to dark, even darker gray. I would never have done that. And yet when I went to, to repaint it, I repainted it exactly the way it had, the way I had received it. Yeah. And there's something about it that's very, very satisfying. I also have to say that I always was fascinated by the Bobcat, and I never understood why people didn't like it. And living here, I think it's an architectural masterpiece, the whole place. I think it's absolutely, unbelievably wonderful so tell us as a place about, to live. So tell us about the detailing then inside. I mean, obviously that's been radically changed, but you've still got the original doors and the and the, and the kind of you know opening sliding mechanism and and the and the estate as a whole what, what is it about it essentially it is the modernist utopian idea of the perfect urban living yeah where you have beautiful apartments with beautiful light everything is, is modern and simple and comfortable uh, there are big open spaces, there are beautiful gardens, there's lakes, there's the concert halls, there's tennis courts, there's you know almost everything that you could think of that you might want in an urban environment is all contained within this place. And all the buildings are, most of the buildings anyway, are lifted on, on the pilates, on the columns, so that the space flows under most of the buildings. If everything went to the ground, it would be heavy and it would be kind of bleak. But because they're lifted up and because everything is penetrated all the time uh, by the space and you can see from one place to another, uh, it makes it extraordinarily beautiful. The light is wonderful, the way it plays off the place, the use of water and the gardens. And one of the things that's special about it is unlike many places built at the time, this place has been maintained perfectly mm. from the day it was built. Yeah, It's in perfect condition. The gardens are beautiful and kept perfectly. I mean, detractors would say that it's, you know, a brutalist monstrosity and it's heavy and hulking. And I think what you're describing is something that's deliberately raised up from street level on a podium. And um, it's got pedestrianized walkways where you're away from the traffic and then they've deliberately designed in a, a huge amount of nature, haven't they? There's there's lots of areas of greenery. There's there's the lake, and then I, I suppose especially in a tower flat, I don't know what floor you're on, but I imagine you know you, again you you've always got the sense of the sky. Do do you do you feel like you're really surprisingly connected to the natural world there? Yes, I, th- that's one of the most extraordinary things about it. I'm on the 21st floor, okay. which is halfway up the the building. The building is 42 stories. And uh, I have the most f- wonderful views of the city. Uh, half the view is the sky. One's incredibly conscious of the change of light, the change of weather during the daytime. And it is amazing how the weather changes in London, how quickly it changes. Uh, I get sunsets that you wouldn't believe. I mean, you get, it's just incredible. And the light comes right down through the apartment. Um, it's very interesting because in a way... One's very detached from the world that one's looking at. And at the same time, I've never felt more connected to the city, more connected to the place than I do here, even being on my own. And I don't feel that sense of isolation because I feel in touch with the, with the world beyond where I am. Um, of course, I, I know the Tower Flats better because it's my own, but it's, I think it's very successful. 
because people really geek out, don't they, on the different flat types in the Barbican. But did you specifically want a tower flat? I definitely wanted to be in a tower. I wanted the view. I wanted. Okay. I've always wanted to. I've always wanted to live in a, in a tall building. I when I first came to London in the sixties, there were a lot of towers that were quite new at the time, and towers going up. And uh, I really wanted to live in one. Then I discovered that they were all council flats, and I wasn't eligible to get one. And so, because I had come from America where to live in a tower was luxurious, whereas here it was the opposite. Yeah. And so, but uh, now, of course, all of this has changed. All these towers that are being built are all luxury apartments now. Yeah. And the the other thing is that because of the time that the Barbican was built, the workmanship in the, the materials used, the quality of workmanship in every detail is incredibly good, incredibly good. And every detail, as as in truly, all truly uh, important architecture, every detail has been thought of and every detail is coherent with the total vision. So that the door handles make sense with the windows and the windows make sense with the outside walls and the, all this. Every single thing has is integrated in a single coherent vision. And that's certainly true here. Does that coherence make it easier to live in? I think it's something that people who don't live here don't understand that although the place is gigantic and it has this brutalist aspect to it, it's a very comfortable place to live. And the people who live here, I think most people who live here really love it because it's like living in a a certain kind of community. It has a strong sense of community. So do you know all of your neighbours and things like that? I know some, but I know quite a few people who live here. Yeah. I went for a walk yesterday with a friend of mine who lives in one of the other towers, and on our walk we ran into two people we know. You know, that's a village feeling, isn't it? That's a very Definitely. nice thing to do. Definitely. I'd just like to touch on modernism for a moment. You, in terms of furnishings in the flat, because you've shown me the pictures, you've, you've, got, yeah. <laughs> uh, you've got an Eames lounge chair, you've got a Le Corbusier sofa, um, you've got some Hans Wegener wishbone chairs. Modernism comes into your work a lot as well, doesn't it? Why are you so interested in that movement? Well, I discovered uh, modernist architecture and design at the same time I discovered modern art when I was a teenager in the 50s. So in the back of my mind always is these things that I saw as a, virtually as a child, thinking I can have that now. And I still, I'm always stunned when I look at the great furniture of the 20th century that it's now 100 years old, nearly 100 years old. And it still epitomizes our whole idea of what it is to be modern. And nothing that's produced today looks more modern than the things that were produced then. And my taste in these things, you know, it's a bit overly iconic. I do kind of... um, (laughs) I I do like every iconic piece of furniture. And over the years, I've kind of owned... There's some I've had over the years that I... You know, I've owned Barcelona chairs, which I don't anymore, but they were the first things I had to have. And... um, but there is a sense in which they seem to me to encapsulate something about uh, modern living. That leads us very nicely into your third choice, which is your apartment in Venice. What fascinates me about this is you've got exactly the same furniture 
in that flat. So you've got an Eames lounge chair, a Le Capoussier sofa, <laughs> and some wishbone chairs, although they're in black, aren't they, in this case? Is there a sort of familiarity and comfort to you to live with the same things? Well, I'm not sure that I can quite explain it, but I had the opportunity, which I never expected in my whole life, to own an apartment in Venice. And I looked at many places. And then I saw this one place. And again, I walked in. And the instant I walked in, I thought, I have to have this place. And if I don't get this place, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm leaving Venice. I'm not going to buy anything. I have to have this place. It's an amazing apartment uh, in a palazzo. By palazzo terms, it's a comparatively modest palazzo, but it's still very grand. And I have the Piano Nobile, which has five meter ceilings in the three main, there are three main rooms. Um, and the building was built around 1470. It's, it's very old. It's been in continual habitation for 600 years over 600 years. And to give you an idea, if it was built in uh, 1470, I've, I've looked this up, Leonardo was 18 years old. <laughs> Michelangelo would not be born for five more years. And Shakespeare would not be born for nearly 100 years. <laughs> Can you feel that in the old walls then? You really, I mean, that, how amazing is that? Yeah, how is. amazing is it to, to have a, uh, And the place I bought, the people who owned it before me, it's an, an Italian couple who are both architects, and they had overseen a, a modernization of the apartment. And they did a really beautiful job, very, very clever job of doing that, so that I was able to move in. It's exactly, there isn't anything I wouldn't have done that they didn't do. And I saw a lot of places in Venice where there were beautiful places that had been ruined by poor modernization. Yeah. And I decided that the building was so old, I would have all the furnishing modern. I don't mix old and new, but it's a big place. And I, I'm 78 years old. I don't have a lot of time here. And I thought, I can't spend five years furnishing this place. So within a year, I furnished it. So I, although I have the, the Corbusier sofas, they're a different color. You know, I've had you know, <laughs> used different colors. Yeah. <laughs> but there's something for me that's very comforting about the fact I go from one place to the other. And there's this continuity. It's, it's, it's as mm. though they're all part of the same. Everything relates to everything else and about how I, how I live. And um, Yeah, I think, I think that's really interesting. Is you're like the Steve Jobs of the furniture world. It's, it's a kind of uniform, <laughs> isn't it? Do you, are, you, do you, are you like that with clothes as well? Yes, yes, that's are true, you? that's true. Yes, that's yes, really yes, yes, yes. I, I, uh, I've worn black things for years, and um, the advantage of wearing things that are black is you never have to decide yeah. All goes what together. color to wear. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's remarkable, though, for an artist that's so obsessed with color as well, isn't it? Well, I do. I do occasionally indulge in a you know in a uh, magenta sweater or something, but um, uh, it's it's a kind of a side, and everybody yeah. I know, know understands that it's a kind of a side. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's it's the palazzo dates from 1470. You said, looking at the pictures, I I, I can completely see what you mean in the sense that with those very high ceilings, it feels like an incredibly modern space, doesn't it? You know, you've got, I don't know if it's what the architects did there, but you've got very minimal architraves and you've got white painted walls and these big spaces. It feels 
with your furniture in it like a modern space. It feels exactly like a modern space to me. That's exactly what I, how I see it. I mean, most of the palazzos, and I've been in some very, very grand palazzos in Venice, the walls are heavily decorated. The walls may be painted. There are tapestries. There are, there are all sorts of ways in which things are decorated. In my uh, apartment, in the study, there is a painted ceiling which is, I think, probably a 19th century thing painted on the ceiling, which is, which is an amazing thing to have. It's not distinguished anyway, but it's kind of a fabulous ploy within a space to have such a thing. But other than that, the, the apartment, all the walls were blank, so it couldn't be more perfect for me. And I, again, because it, I have such high walls, of course, I have quite a few of my own large, very large works there. Uh, I have two large things by other artists, but other than that, um, most of the things are my own. You've got a, yeah, you've got a lovely one behind your desk, which is, um, from memory, it's got a tennis ball and a USB stick and a suitcase on it. Is that right? It, yes, I, uh, I love the painting and I love the painting in that room. It looks yeah. real, it, it feels absolutely right. And that, that room, this, which is the one with the painted ceiling, is the, the study. It's on the corner. It gets fabulous. The whole apartment gets incredible, beautiful light, streams in. And it's a joy to be in that room. I really, and I love it very much. Thinking about your art, how, how do you go about creating a new work? What's your process? For years, I have I've done uh, initial work and planning on the computer. Um, I started using a computer quite early, so I became very familiar with it. I now draw everything with a mouse on a computer. Every drawing is done like that. Yeah. In terms of the, of the initial drawing, there, there is no original because all of the originals are electronic and you only get a drawing that's not on the screen when you print it. So in a sense, every reproduction is an original because one version is as true as another version. Okay. Um, but because my work is is very precise when it comes to being made, to, to get something to look as machine-made as what I do, it's a very difficult job. No, Hand-making, it's, it's extremely handmade. But it means that I have to be able to uh, know what I'm doing before I start. It's not that things don't change as I'm making something, but I have to know a lot before I start because there's certain things that's very difficult to change or not, and some things are impossible to change once I've started. Uh, but the thing that's so great about the computer, as as you'll know, is, is you make a drawing of something, you make another drawing, you make it this color, you make it that color, you make it this size, you make it that size. You save them all, you go back and forth between one another. I might do 40 drawings for a single work. No other time in my career could I have ever have done that. So you can you can plan things and you can adjust things to an extraordinary extent before you ever get to the point of actually making something. So the the refining and the editing is done on the computer, and then how does it get from the computer to the canvas? Um, if I make a painting, I, I do the drawing for the for the painting, work out everything, what size the painting would be, where you know, the positioning of images, whatever it is, the composition, whatever it is that I'm going to do. And then I work out the color, how, what the color fields are going to be. And then I take the drawing and project it directly from the computer onto a 
canvas or onto a panel. Mm -hmm. And then I do the drawing with tape on directly on the panel. And then the colors are added. At the time the colors are added, that's the time when when it's still possible to make significant changes. And yeah. they get changed as as I'm painting or or as the thing progresses, you can see where uh, something might be better or something's not quite what I want. How do you get that flatness and uniformity in the colour? Um, all the paintings are done with th- small rollers. Right. The paintings are actually very... They they have a very particular kind of physical presence. I'm very I'm very interested in the physicality of things. I hate my own work in reproduction because it's reduced to something that's like a graphic image. Whereas when you see the actual painting, it's actually very physical. It has a, a peculiar kind of physicality. I mean, where I use the tape, the tape is always the first layer, and so. The, the lines that might appear to be on top of everything are actually under everything. Right. And so there's a kind of very shallow relief in the paintings. And I, I'm very conscious of scale. I never make anything without thinking of the scale of the image, the scale of the painting in relation to the viewer. Well, in reproduction, they all become postage stamps. They, you know, they all become reduced to to something else and you lose the physicality you lose the scale and both of these are key things to my understanding of what i do yeah yeah so so interesting michael why why venice out of interest why have you got a place there um i first went to venice when i was about 10 and i was stunned by the place and i've been stunned every time i go and it's a kind of magic city and it seems to me it's 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 a city uh, it's a very interesting urban solution. You know, I have a grandson who lives in um, New York. Yeah. He's 16, and I was uncertain what his reaction would be to Venice. And he immediately liked it, and it's because it's so urban. Right. It's small, as in comparison to New York, but it's a, a, an idea of urban living. Mm. And that was immediately, he could f- sense that. Yeah, and I I think that's wonderful about it. Yeah, I yeah. believe in cities. Yeah, very good. I think we should finish there. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for well, for talking to me. Thanks very much. It's been enjoyable talking to you. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. To keep in touch with what we're doing, please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. You can see photos of the homes we talked about today on our website, themodernhouse.com. The producer of this episode was Caroline Hughes and the executive producer was Kate Taylor for Feast Collective.